Welcome back to another episode of the Barbell Nerds, guys. My name is Sean with my co-host, Will Rattel. Today on the line, we have Chris Borthwick. Chris, thanks for coming on live with us today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's great to be on, and you've had a lot of great guests. I've been looking through kind of your Instagram profile and the podcast and things, and yeah, it's, it's an honor to be on. Appreciate it, man. I couldn't pass up an opportunity to talk to you. We tried to get you a little bit beforehand, but the uh, time difference is a bit, a bit of a challenge, even with two people, I'm sure. So three people. <laughs> We got that. three different time zones represented. <laughs> That's how yeah. it is. Wow, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm East Coast right now. Will's uh, Central still. Yeah, I don't. I don't miss the weather back in North Dakota though. Not at that. Had today. You should see London right now. <laughs> well, why don't you tell the listeners uh, who's uh, who's Chris Portland? Yeah, so a strength conditioning coach essentially, but um, I don't like to keep it kind of just to just to strength condition obviously I like to think I'm hopefully a little bit more than that my missus might say otherwise I don't know um but there you go so yeah I'm kind of back in the UK um at the moment in a in a new position I'm just taking up as the like, head of strength conditioning at a regional performance center um but previously got experiences uh, like obviously working uh, in the U.S. Uh, Wake Forest University and I spent a little bit of time at uh, Northwestern State University as well down in, in Louisiana um and then a little bit of time lecturing, actually, um, back in the UK at the University of Bath as well. So I won't bore everyone with, with all of the details, but that's kind of the, uh, the Cliff Notes version. What are you, what are you teaching then? Like X-Fizz? So, yeah, at the time I was um, lecturing in strength and conditioning. So it kept it pretty – it just essentially covered quite a lot of things um, as kind of undergraduate strength and conditioning like, units go. So a bit of fizz in there, bit of lifting yeah. technique, just just a bit of everything, injury and assessment, that sort of stuff. Cool, man. Um, actually, like I've actually said, that is one of the better things that big strength industry coaches can do is to teach a college level, whether it's an introductory level class. If nothing else, it helps just retain information. I think a little bit better from year to year. Hell, I still go through my uh, general anatomy book uh, just to re up on basic muscles of the, uh, of the legs, uh, the hip flexors, adductors, everything like that. Because if you don't really look at them all the time, it, they, they tend to drift away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And it was, I think actually the first lecture I gave in front of, I think I had a few, 100 students uh, in this lecture theater. And I kind of pull up the presentation. And then you, some of the stuff you just forget because you haven't like regurgitated it for, for quite a while and that sort of stuff. But that position I have, which was kind of a hybrid, at the time, it was kind of lecturing, um, coaching, and I actually worked a bit coach education, um, which, was, which was great fun. But that helped me a lot, kind of setting up for other roles as well, just public speaking and things like that. Um, being able to speak in front of 100 people and kind of put your ideas across, and well, hopefully put your ideas across to help the students, and then taking them through uh, full exams and assessment and preparation for assessment and actually marking um, 100 students kind of coursework and stuff, which at times wasn't the most fun. It was a lot of time consuming, but you gained a lot from those experiences. Were you doing any lab work with the students? To be honest, the lab work was not like fizz lab work. It was more um, testing that sort of stuff in terms of actually, whether it be like 40 yard dash, for example, 505, like teaching them how to set that stuff up. Um, FMS, those type of things. Um, We didn't necessarily go down the, strict fizz route that was kind of uh, a different class for them um, but yeah i kept it more in what we would actually do in a more of an applied setting okay cool yeah i would i would definitely 
take a class from you because I'm starting to lose a lot of the stuff that I once learned in, in like a formal education setting. But that's a, that's a story for another day. But um, I want to ask you a specific question about an Instagram post you made, um, which I thought was really like thought provoking. Um, so it says the common misconception with fitness and the common misconception with fitness is the confusion between the demands of the sport and what training is truly required to create a performance edge. Could you just kind of elaborate and tell us what you're thinking behind that post and what you're trying to like pick up? Yeah. So I think if I, if I can remember that post rightly, I think that was something that I had on my desk, um, for like quite a, probably 12 months now. If I can remember rightly, I think it was like Carl Newell from his constraints-led approach or something along those lines. And it just stuck with me, like that quote or something similar. And I had it there as a constant reminder on my desk to ask more questions and actually find out what the demands of the sport are. Because I think too often we look at it from very much a surface view and we don't actually start peeling back the layers. We look at maybe tennis and we see... I use tennis as an example, just because that's, that's essentially what I've been working in for the last three or four years. Um, but we look at it and we say, okay, well, it's a repeat sprint sport. And that's kind of it. That's as far as some people go. And we, so we just train it in that repeat sprint manner, which, yeah, that's okay. And it probably gets the job done to an extent. But if we're looking at being maybe the best team in the country or taking guys to the pro game or girls uh, to the pro game, that's not enough. And so I think the bigger questions are, which I'm sure like ourselves, we're always asking these questions is what actually makes up repeat sprint ability. So it's, it's looking around some of the common misconceptions that we actually see with kind of the fitness industry and things like that and how we actually understand what actually, what is needed to create the performance edge. It's not just lots of high intensity interval training. It's not just repeat sprint training. It's actually peeling back those layers to say, okay, well, is tennis actually an alactic aerobic sport that is just kind of manifest itself in this repeat sprint format that we see? And then the alactic, as we know, underpins a lot of the stuff that we do, our high power output things that are actually the things that are a little bit more fatiguing than anything else. Um, that's what we've kind of got to focus on, actually being good to start with. So we've got a little bit more of a, a movement reserve or a speed reserve in those things and then underpin and repeat that in the form of the uh, aerobic system. Um, and I think just actually delving into some of the details and the literature behind the sport itself helps you answer a lot of those questions. So I went down a few little rabbit holes um, when I was at Wake Forest and just to really understand what the actual demands of the sport are. And saying a lot of the classic thing in tennis is, oh, well, look, like, look at all the lactate that's being produced, okay, by these players. I'm just like, what lactate? Like, there's literally no lactate going on here. And so I, I put a presentation together to show um, coaches what was going on just to kind of solve, or hopefully get to the bottom of some of these common misconceptions, just to prove that, look, like the worst I could find in any of the literature was that lactate levels got up to like six millimoles. And that was on a clay court. And even that data was actually an anomaly. And if you're hitting six millimoles of lactate, you're not really affecting performance that much. That's not actually that high a level. If we get up to eight, it's like, yeah, okay, we're going to see some performance decrements. 10, yeah, serious decrements in performance. But six is like, yeah, we're not going to see that much versus, and that's on clay and that was an anomaly. So what I actually say to them, college tennis plays in, on hard court let's look at the literature around hardcore. We've looked at kind of the worst case, the things that we're definitely not going to see in college tennis. 
on a clay court, which is much slower, more taxing. Let's look at the hard court. It was typically sitting between kind of three, maybe 4.5 on a tough day. Um, so that for me is what I was trying to get at with those like common misconceptions, trying to understand what the sport is actually about. Um, so we can really solve those, the performance, the higher level performance questions. Um, so we can actually perform at a high level. Go ahead, John. I'm glad you brought up the different uh, style or the different types of courts because that was one of the bigger things that I was wondering. I will can attest to this. I, he knows tennis a lot more than I do just because I've never worked with them or I did it at my GA like 10 years ago. Um, but are, are there certain seasons where they're playing clay courts more? Certain uh, And how do you tailor, I guess, do your energy system development training uh, differ depending on the season? Or, or for the uh, style of court or the type of court that they play in on? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. I think, to be honest, tennis is one of those sports, this is a bit of a, like a cheap answer and kind of a way out of it. I'll come back to it in a second. Um, it but depends, tennis, isn't it? It's a yeah, depends, it, it? it really <laughs> does. Like, it really does. <laughs> and um, it depends on the, a few things. The type of athlete you've got, the type of game style you've got, and then obviously the surface you're playing on. Your game style is going to dictate a lot of the different training parameters um, that you work on within within practice scenarios. Um, and tennis is one of those sports as well that you can actually like train yourself into like good a good level of fitness, so to speak. Um, so, and what we started getting to at Wake Forest was actually I wouldn't do that much conditioning. Based, we'd try and get. I would do conditioning, but I wouldn't do loads and loads of it. We'd try and get it from practice itself. So we would design different practices different drills to get certain adaptations um, so we had a really good relationship with, between like the performance staff and the coaching staff and to try and create um, different practices uh, and drill applications to to get the essentially the adaptations that we wanted physiologically which worked really well um, but kind of coming, coming back to your question it's it's interesting so we're looking at if we look at a clay court that is like the french open for example which like people, listeners might have heard of and i'm trying to get my head around the, the clay court season it's been all over the place recently with with covid and things like that but essentially that's going to happen before wimbledon so i believe it's kind of um, like june uh, june time if i get that right i could have easily got that wrong i should know that um but it's kind of happening before Wimbledon so your clay is very much a like a slower surface where guys can slide think of it as kind of using your your slide board in the weight room where you're looking at like more eccentric uh, lengthening muscle contractions more time under tension that sort of stuff so your longer um, longer duration rallies and the it is quite significant like the difference in rally length um, as the dog's just barking in the background here <laughs> um, let me just shut, I'll just shut that door very quickly. Um, but yeah, and it does make quite a difference, actually. Sorry. Um, but that does I'm actually good. make... <laughs> it does actually make uh, quite a big difference to, to how you prepare. So if I were preparing someone for more of a clay court season going into it, it would be more through a practice, um, like a specific practice design, but it would be based around longer points, longer duration points. Potentially, I would actually take them to the worst case scenario of trying to induce a little bit more lactate or like suckier training drills, so to speak, if we keep it really simple, um, versus something like a grass court season where the rally length really is zero to four, 85% of the time. 
versus your clay core, it's still it's still going to be zero to four is going to be the dominant rally length, but it's going to be somewhere closer to like 65, 70% of the time. Um, and it's actually a lot, if you take a huge average, and now we know averages are actually, they are misleading, but they give you a basis to, to base some of your program design off of. I look at the averages typically and the worst case scenarios around different surfaces. But if we take the average of all of the surfaces, you're looking at 70% or more at times um, of all rallies are actually five seconds or less. So when you've got, which is pretty astounding when you think of it. Okay. So only 3%, I think it is, I think it's 3% are actually of all rallies are um, 30 seconds or longer. So now we start looking at these actual figures and I'm getting away from kind of your question a little bit, but I think it's actually important to understand that tennis isn't this massively like lactic sport that coaches think it is. And that's what I, I mean when I talk about like peeling back the layers and actually trying to understand the sport itself, it's go and watch the sport, dig into the literature, speak to the sport coaches. And I think honestly, more importantly, speak to the players. How do they feel? What's the actual, the questions I'm asking my players is, okay, well, what makes you tired on the court? More than likely, it's some sort of lateral movement and something else, um, depending on their game style. Um, I've had players before say, oh, it's, it's lateral movement or sprinting to a wide forehand to get back into the center of the court or go to the opposite side of the court. And one of the, one of the best players I've ever worked with actually said, I get very much kind of mentally fatigued because I have to think so much on the court. Now, for me, that was that was very interesting. Um, harder for me to kind of deal with that, and that took me a lot of getting around, and I still don't know if I necessarily done a good enough job with that scenario. Um, but it just makes you think that lateral movement's fatiguing him, but almost a joint, uh, joint first was kind of mental fatigue in terms of the amount he's got to think um, about where he's putting the ball, what's his opponent doing next, how did he strike this ball, and there's just so much going on. Um, that for me, that was really interesting. That's what we kind of based some of the, the programs um, around. I, I know I went, I went massively away from your question there, but hopefully that kind of helps paint a little bit of the picture there. No, that sums it up beautifully. Go ahead, Will. Yeah, well, I was going to ask about, well, could you give us an example of what you typically do, even though it's pretty minimal, the conditioning that you do with the tennis players because you want them to get it from their sport? Mm -hmm. Could you give us some examples of what things you implement? And I guess I don't really know... Um, with your position and your situation, how much you're allowed to like use a, use a tennis ball in training or use like specific tennis implements in training. So what, what do you typically do with the tennis players when you are trying to get, you know, that repeated sprint ability, even though that's kind of a surface level way of thinking about it. Um, what does a conditioning session typically look like or a few examples of that? So now in my current position, I can use, like, I'm out of the NCAA, so I can use anything <laughs> I want, which is fantastic. Yeah, um, congratulations for that. <laughs> thank you, yeah. <laughs> so, kind of getting, getting back to your question, yeah, like, what does conditioning actually look like for my guys? If I had it exactly the way I would want it, it would be very much kind of low aerobic work, kind of definitely less than 150 beats per minute, even 130, just more re uh, recovery get on the bike, low impact. We're not going to beat up the joints any more than we need to on the court. Maybe some mouth tape work, but a lot of the stuff's going to come from drill design actually on the court itself, having a really good relationship with the, the sport coaches. Um, that's something I haven't obviously with COVID and stuff like that, haven't had a good chance to implement in my, in my new position because I actually haven't been in the building yet. <laughs> um, but 
at Wake, what we actually managed to do was have a, have a drill design and like a portfolio of different drills where we would be able to pull from and just distribute depending on the, the physical like adaptation we were looking for in each day. Um, so I essentially created a menu for the sport coaches and said, look, this is what our, we kept it high low just to make it really simple. Um, I didn't necessarily always follow a very high low model because tennis just isn't high low. No matter which way you look at it, it's very much, we go kind of high low throughout the week, but then there's times when they've got to go high, 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 potentially if we're going to try and qualify for a national indoor tournament, for example. So if we were to go high low throughout the week or consistently, it wouldn't prepare them for the demands of the sport. Um, so it's, Sounds very good when we're talking and looking at like Charlie's books and stuff like that, which is they lay the foundations of what we do, but we've still got to, I think, have the understanding of the sport of how to manipulate some of those principles. Um, so yeah, like I created a, a movement, not a movement library, a essentially a training library of, uh, of different kind of constraints to work within and then let the coaches around that design the drills and the, one of the best ways, uh, I think the best idea I had, which made it really simple to understand was say our high days are full court and our low days are uh, half court. So straight away, if we look at full court, then we're getting higher speeds. So typically in tennis, that can be, I've actually seen some data which gets up to like 14. Um, oh, what I'm talking about. So sorry, eight meters per second, uh, eight meters per second moving around. Some even a little bit faster at times. Now that's, that's, that's moving. Uh, considering the court's pretty small um so we're hitting higher speeds we're hitting higher eccentric uh, loading and change of directions and things like that which are going to be more fatiguing the velocity of rotation and distraction forces at the shoulder um, especially the posterior shoulder are going to be much higher on those days versus our half court which are going to be more i actually call it tempo tennis um which is more just volume like cross-court hitting um and there we can, I say volume, but because there's very little, we're, it's, I know typically people say like small-sided games are quite high intensity, but in tennis, the space is that small that you're not actually moving that far that we can actually keep the intensity reasonably low. So we can invoke pretty much a pretty good response in terms of tempo by doing our volume hitting, uh, whether it be cross-court. And a lot of coaches like to be able to get those reps in for their athletes just trading maybe backhand cross, forehand cross and things like that. So by able to go in like full court and half court for our high and low days, that helped a lot. And then as well, having this drill classification where we can say, so I put heart rate monitors onto um, all of my guys and then the girls use whoop as well, um, which I personally think is quite good for the situation we had. Some people knock it, like some people like it, each their own. For the situation I had, I quite liked it. Um, but I can look back at all of those sessions and say, okay, well, this drill at this time point elected this physiological response. What is this drill coach? Oh, it was this one if, as we were going through it initially. Um, and then we can just plug and place different drills. So I know that a two cross one line drill, I know what I really know what that is, but that elects an 80 plus percent heart rate response. So if we're chasing higher level um, adaptations, we, we can easily program like a four on four off four sets, for example, which we know gets um, is really going to improve uh, conditioning levels at those higher adaptations. Um, we can, we can program that drill and that's the type of stuff I think we can get to. Um, yes. I run various tempos and things like that, depending on the time of the year from what I'm doing to prepare them for the demands. Um, 
we do some linear tempo, multi-directional tempo based around, I actually started them off at just 10 seconds on this year. We just run for 10 seconds. Um, we started, I think it was switching back now. I think we went 30 seconds off and just in a linear tempo fashion. So really easy, pretty monotonous though. Uh, and then the, the good thing is as well, I give them the distance they've got to hit, but then they have an active recovery work, uh, walking to kind of the next cone because that's what they've got to do in tennis. They don't just get this chance to, to stand still. They've got to walk. They've got to think mentally. Going back to what I said earlier about the guy being mentally fatigued, they're constantly thinking about what's actually happening. They're going to their towel at the back of the court. Um, they're thinking about the first serve they just missed, the winner they just hit or, or whatever. So they've got to constantly keep moving. Um, so, yeah, I let them walk to the next cone and then they'll start their tempo on the way back. So, yeah, we do that sort of stuff um, like, like everyone does, uh, to be honest with you. Just looking to mainly work above and below those demands and hopefully let the, um, the actual sport practice take care of that kind of horrible middle zone. And then if we need to, going into certain like national championships where we're expected to potentially play um, five out of seven days in a row, for example, something along those lines, then yeah, we'll push the training uh, volumes potentially up a little bit a few weeks before that. And I actually try to peak through um, like inducing the lactate response. So we'll put them in some, whether it be like a, just to improve like lactate buffering capacity and certain muscles and things like that, we'll use those sort of uh, training parameters over two weeks out from events. So this is where people sometimes message me and they're like, what are you doing peaking with lactate? It's like, well, I'm not peaking with lactate because then we're not hitting, we're not going to be fresh. So I'm not training in kind of a, I don't even like the word, but in a lactate inducing situation or drills before we go into the main competition before a national championship final, for example, we're doing this kind of weeks three and four before we come into our two week kind of tapered block where we just drop the training volume and everything's high quality, high speed. Um, and then that sets us up quite nicely because we know from, if we look at like uh, training residuals, we're going to hold on to those residuals, especially with the amount of stuff we're going to get on court from point play anyway. We're going to hold on to those pretty well for our kind of national championship uh, tournament week. Um, so that's pretty much in a, I say a nutshell, it's quite a, quite a long-winded answer, but that's how I go about it. Yes, we do predominantly work up uh, above and below the demands of the sport, but then we try to manipulate the, the sport practice itself with the coaches that I work with um, to get those adaptations. And then what are the type of adaptations you're trying to achieve? That's not what would you, what you would consider conditioning for tennis in terms of like strength speed. Yeah. Yeah. So I look at obviously lower body power relative to body weight is going to be huge. So are you looking at a specific metric? I, I saw that you were, you were at, uh, you had the radar guns on their serves. Yeah. Um, it, like, is that your main focus of like the strength and power component of training or there, maybe you're looking at like a vertical jump or like, yeah, what's, what's the metric you're looking for? Yeah. So we have a few like main KPIs. One of our best, in my opinion, KPIs that we can actually see impact on the core is the first serve velocity. So that is something that we track over time. We were doing weekly. Um, we kind of called it Big Serve Wednesday. Just the guys got excited about that. I would be on a court. I'd have the radar gun as part of their drill rotation. I'd be standing on the court. They'd come in, hit there, whether it be. We started off at 10 serves just because limiting the amount of serves makes them focus more, makes them really rip the ball. Don't care if the ball goes in or out. It's chasing that high-level adaptation. And then we would build those serves up over time as well. 
Um, so that's one of the KPIs that we used and we tracked that. Other ones, for me, especially in the women's games, actually um, like power output relative to body weight. So we take that from a, like a counter movement jump. Um, that is across all of the data I've collected. That's one of the main KPIs. Like, so we do DEXA scans pretty regularly with uh, men's and women's teams. That's got to be one of the most important things. And I know that maybe people will be thinking, yeah, duh, like that's, it's obvious, but I think it's often forgotten because if you're carrying around 10, 15 pounds of extra like body mass, that's, that's not functional, so to speak, that's just dragging you down. Like you're out on court for three hours. Maybe you're playing six hours a day. If you're playing double headers, that is just wasted energy. So that's one of the main KPIs. Our best players have the best body composition for the most part or best power to, to body weight ratio. So that's one of the big things that we look at. I also look at uh, reactive strength. So the ability, I sell it to coaches that look, the ability to get in and out of a split step, to change direction, um, to put essentially force into the ground, uh, utilize obviously the, the, the stretch shortening cycle and being, everyone talks about oh, being reactive, like fast feet and things like that. It's, it's almost an easy sell that quality. And now we know we don't mean fast feet through ladders and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one of the main things that we use. I use an adapted uh, 505 drill. So we actually start, I set it up on the tennis court. I get my guys to sprint from one doubles line. I set the gates up in the middle of the, the service line on the, on the court. So we're sprinting across the court here. They sprint all the way through. They put their foot over the far doubles line and then sprint back through. Um, so we, we've got an entrance velocity there as well. You can do it actually. And I know, uh, I think the LTA do it where you've actually got to enter it, I believe, greater than 60% of your 10 meter time. So to make sure the entrance velocity is good enough to actually challenge the, cha the, the ability to change direction, which is huge. Um, I don't do that just for time to actually stand there as a one person band, one man band kind of calculating all those things. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things we use. And then we use a 10 meter sprint as well. Um, and then I don't really have massive strength metrics, to be honest with you. It's, I look at single leg strength. I think that's important. Can we do a single leg squat with 25% uh, of our body weight loading on, on, on the person? That's important. That's a good strength metric. Can females do five good solid chin-ups? That's going to be important for me. Um, I think that sounds very simple, but it's not always that easy to achieve if you can do five chin-ups. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't think any of my female athletes can do three, maybe three, but not five. Yeah. yeah, so that's one of the things that we set. Can we do five chin-ups? And that's one of the things that comes into it if we go back to our um, like body composition, our strength-to-body-weight ratio. Like That's a good strength-to-body-weight ratio for a female if you're doing five solid chin-ups. So I've got some girls that are actually doing loaded chin-ups as well. So that, there's some of the things we're chasing. I'm not chasing chin-ups at the extent of other things. That's not the only goal of the program. The program's not designed to do that. It's designed around building hopefully a holistic athlete that can depending on their game style and things as well. If we've got someone, we'll use a really simple example. That's maybe big serve, really powerful, might chase and rush the net. That's going to be slightly different physically to someone that's a very defensive baseline that needs to make a lot of balls. Like if we go back to our, how the points are broken up, that's going to be completely different um, between those two game styles. So your defensive baseliner is going to need higher levels of, of aerobic fitness, probably more actually like glycolytic conditioning in there because they're going to push those boundaries more often versus your guy who's going to be very powerful, but is going to have potentially 80% of all points in that zero to four shot range. 
So yeah, just kind of looking at some of those those metrics is going to be is pretty important for us. Good stuff, man. That's awesome. Um, you actually answered a lot of the questions I because one of the things I wanted to look at was like KPS of tennis because I've been uh, away from the game of tennis for a while besides just watching Wimbledon on TV, um, <laughs> which is always pretty cool. I assume the your athletes tend to get you on the court every now and then. And were you able to kind of rally with them a little bit here and there? Yeah, try to, you know, like I used to play growing up so I can cool. I'd be lying if I said I could hold my own um, at that <laughs> collegiate D1 level. That's, that's, that's a lie. <laughs> but um, I, I will say one of the things that they were really good at whenever I did work at tennis is just playing ping pong. They were fantastic yeah. and they loved to do it. And it was so much fun to play against them. Yeah, that like hand-eye is unreal. They're unreal on the table. Um, and actually that, that's reminded me of one thing that I used to think was just a joke within tennis. Um, and it's, I've probably changed my opinion on this in the last six months at the most. And it's actually the ability to people say there's a lot of bouncy balls and things like this. And I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the bouncy balls because they don't necessarily improve your perception kind of action skills. Mm. But I think there's a time and a place just maybe at the end of a warm up for like 60 seconds because, and I've started talking about this more recently with my other athletes, um, and it's, it's to do with like your eyes are a muscle, so you still need to train them accordingly. And it's, you've got to warm up your, your eyes just like warm up the rest of the body. And I, some people might call me a little bit crazy here, but I've seen the, those improvements. If we do like 60 seconds of work, maybe it's just not even reaction balls, just drop balls and things like that. Just get everyone moving, getting them to focus in on the writing on a ball and things like that can they see it catching something that's a certain color or whatever it's it is very much like the instagram kind of video mm -hmm. that you see quite often but i've seen the actual i'm sure there's i was speaking to someone i'm sure there's either research behind it or he's done his own research into it one of the guys i was speaking to the quality of actual practice once they did that kind of 60 seconds of whether it be hand-eye coordination or whatever you want to call it is actually so much more focused than just whether we've done our general movement prep or whatever performance prep, and then going into hitting some tennis balls. So the ability to actually warm up the eyeballs, so to speak. And so they can focus better. The quality of practice after that is huge. So if we've got a, an eight hour NCAA training week, and maybe we're down to four hours, um, technical, tactical, four hours, physical. Then for me, like we've got to have a really good performance prep, which includes that. So we can maximize our four hours of, um, on call time. Awesome, dude. We are just under two minutes to go. Uh, we always like to end our podcast with one last question. We'll hit them with it. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on and having a discussion with us. Learned a lot from this. This, this is awesome. Uh, who, who would you recommend that we reach out to in the near future to get on as a guest? Well, thank you first and foremost for having me on. Uh, it's, been a, it's been an honor. Really enjoyed it. My go-to, I'd have to say Stefan Jones. So oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that guy's a genius. I try to pester him as much as he will, he will let me. Um, but he, yeah, he's a genius. He's, I think slowly changing the game and people are starting to understand some of the stuff he's talking about massively backed in data, and everything he does. Um, so it's quite hard to argue with at times when he's got all that much data. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, he, he, he's a genius. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, number three, I believe, well, on the awesome, uh, accents that we've had on our podcast we've had yes. dr fergus Connolly, Kieran of Vlad, and Chris. Yeah, uh, there you go. we're just we're just racking up the awesome accents let's keep that <laughs> rolling uh chris again thanks dude this was a lot of fun no worries thank you thanks man